Welcome to the Quantum Pod, a podcast by Zapata. What do you actually need to know about the quantum threat to encryption? Stay tuned to this episode with Christopher Savoy and Jonathan Olson to find out about just that. Welcome to this security-focused episode of the Quantum Pod. I have with me Jonathan Olson, who is our Associate Director of Quantum Science IP, and Christopher Savoy, who is CEO, and both of them are founders. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, This is your guys' pod today. Let's set the stage. What is in the pod with you? And this can be music, food, some sort of equipment. Uh, Johnny, why don't you go first? Uh, well, we're going to be talking about quantum security. That's all I know. Uh, I have no musical talent uh, or any other talent for that matter. Uh, just uh, <laughs> just uh, chatting away here. So, But you did have a top secret security clearance at one point, didn't you? Uh, not top secret, uh, but secret. Oh. Uh, I think it goes confidential, secret, top secret, and then all the other and clearances super that... Yeah, right. You you probably, if if you even know of the level, you know, then uh, you have to be killed if you're not in that level. So, All right. well, I hope hope you're not you're not disclosing anything that you shouldn't be. We'll keep that <laughs> locked in a safe somewhere. Christopher, what about you? Well, I don't have a super secret um, double <laughs> jeopardy uh, um, clearance, uh, but I do have music. Um, and I do actually have my my strat with me here and my Marshall half stack. Let's um, let's so hear it. Good, so I can you know, play a little bit. Love it. All right, so we've got some new rapid fire questions for you, um, Christopher, especially because you've been on the pod before. So the first one is, what has been the biggest change in quantum computing since you first entered the field? And let's start with you, Christopher. Uh, biggest change since I started? Well, uh, I think that we've got more qubits. <laughs> That's, we can start with that. Uh, and the qubits are getting better. You know, uh, I think that this is, this is starting to be, not that it, we didn't think it was going to be real uh, when you know, Johnny and I and the others uh, founded the company, but we're seeing the reality. And I think also what's really cool is that uh, the, the kind of Second derivative of the whole function of uh, uh, roadmaps and everything, uh, acceleration is happening, and that has a positive slip. So that's actually very cool to see how this is compressing. Like that was kind of the prediction, honestly, that that I would have had. That you know, when engineers start getting in this and you start applying lots of money and people get really serious about this, uh, and it's no longer just a lab experiment, that it, that the that the pace of delivery of that hardware is going to uh, turn up a notch and it's more than a notch. It's, it's really kind of, uh, really accelerating right now. And I yeah. think that, that that's really kind of cool to watch. Yeah, definitely. Johnny, what about you? Yeah, I think, uh, echoing Christopher's point, I think the biggest change I've seen is, I mean, I don't talk to customers that often, but the people we talked to sort of four years ago, when we founded the company, those conversations look very different than they do today. People are a lot more savvy about quantum computing, and they're a lot more serious about, you know, adopting it and putting it into their into their enterprise. And that's exciting to see. For sure. And what do you think will be the biggest coming change? Johnny, start with you. Oh, that's a tough question, Ethan. Um, I think 
you know, one, one thing I think is, is going to happen, um, you know, and I, I hate to pose it this way, but th there's a lot of um, legitimate companies and researchers out there, but there's an ever increasing tide of people uh, in quantum who just use the, the phrase because they think nobody else understands it, right? And they think they can, uh, you know, pull one over on on customers and things like that. And, um, you know, as, as the hype grows and as real results start to be proven, I think there's going to be more and more of these people coming in. Uh, and so I think that'll be something we, we will have to deal with. Christopher, what about you? Biggest coming change that you see coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I think that there's a, there is this, um, injection of sobriety into the, into the field, you know, like Johnny, I think is referring to, uh, for us, you know, that's in some ways a good thing that people can have realistic expectations of what they're going to get, uh, out of this technology in, especially on the near term, as far as their ROI. And, and I think that that's all actually good. You know, now we can really start to talk Turkey. Um, uh, I think that, uh, What's what's really coming is that uh, there are new architectures emerging now. Um, we're kind of like dark horses in the background before, but when you see things emerging like uh, this recent success of uh, silicon-based, silicon spin-based architectures, for example, that becomes really exciting. You know that that there may be some real scalability happening on a, a shorter time frame than a lot of people might have imagined. You know. I think it was uh, just this year that we had six entangled spin qubits working on silicon. And because that's built on CMOS technology, that's a new dark horse to be not even a dark horse anymore. Um, that starts to be really exciting. And, you know, Intel and others down in Australia, uh, Andrew Jurek's group just uh, uh, recently spun out. Um, so, so there's a whole new architecture that people weren't even thinking about before. So there are a lot of these new things uh, approaching, new successes in using uh, what might have been thought of neutral atoms as a, sam uh, a simulation platform exclusively uh, being used to do gate model stuff. Um, and that's pretty cool, too. So um, a lot of new stuff emerging, and it's hard to pick one. Um, but I think that for me, it's about new architectures that may uh, emerge as uh, possibilities for really scaling this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and hearing all this talk about accelerating timelines, quantum computing getting faster and better and you know more sobriety getting injected into the field I can't help but think about people getting more sober about the security risks associated with quantum computing which just happens to be the topic of today's podcast so why don't you walk us through what are some of the security risks associated with quantum computing well, I think it started out with you know um, and maybe this is another change to answer one of your other questions was when we started it was all about just Shor's algorithm and that's all people cared about that's all you saw in the popular press you didn't see anything about chemistry you didn't see anything about optimization it was all about Shor's algorithm and, and that's just everything quantum computing equals the death of RSA that's all you know that was the headline and the byline and every line in between. Just so everyone's on the same page, Shor's algorithm was one of the first quantum algorithms that was found to be provably more efficient than its classical counterpart. It can be used to factor a number exponentially faster than a classical computer can, and this means that it can be used to threaten RSA and RSA derivatives. This leaves basically all of the internet vulnerable to attack because RSA is used as a public key cipher virtually everywhere. Christopher goes on to say, But it also was the furthest out. Um, as far as everyone's concerns or uh, use cases in the field, they're like, yeah, sure. Once we have a fault tolerant computer, we're a ways away from that. So um, I, I think that, you know, that when we started, 
it was everything about yours and and now it's not but um it's still something we need to worry about um because it's getting closer and closer and closer uh and as we can discuss a little bit you know there also is uh the possibility that Shores isn't the only way to crack this using a quantum computer either. There's that scary possibility that you don't possibly need a an actual fault tolerant computer that's maybe 20, 30 years away um, on, on conservative estimates to be able to really uh, challenge our current security infrastructure. And that's a very sobering fact, because that means that the timelines are actually also being accelerated as to when I have to take seriously uh, my infrastructure in my company or my, or as a, a country, what our uh, infrastructure looks like uh, as far as uh, being uh, secure against such um, attacks by nation states. That's really serious stuff. We saw um, with the pipeline um, uh, uh, takeover and, and what, what a, a simple phishing attack could do. What if all of the encryption was compromised uh, that we're currently using for all of our infrastructure? That could be really scary. Johnny, I don't know if you had some thoughts there. Yeah, I think... You know, one of the things that's a little scary to think about in terms of the risk is that how little we know about the power of quantum computing still. And what I mean by that is, you know, what exactly can quantum computers do, right, that classical computers can't do? So while we have RSA, which is sort of this proof, uh, uh, you know, in the pudding that there's something powerful here, what other crypto systems might be vulnerable that we don't know are vulnerable yet, right? And how do you prove, you know, once you have some encryption that, you know, is hopefully resistant, right? How do you prove that that's not going to be breakable by some quantum algorithm, right? And the, the truth of the matter is that we don't know. Like, we don't have very good approaches uh, to prove that, right? We, we have guesses, right? We can, we can feel things out and say, well, this doesn't look like a problem that might be solved. But we've certainly been surprised before. I mean... Shor's algorithm itself w w was a very surprising result. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that uh, is going to be an ongoing issue where, you know, even even if we find ourselves resistant to uh, Shor's algorithm and, you know, quantum period finding, there might be uh, a, a next quantum algorithm looming that just hasn't been discovered yet. I mean, I think it was a surprise in our group when Yudong and and a, an intern from MIT uh, came in and over uh, not just a summer, but a couple of days, literally, they were able to uh, come up with uh, VQF, variational quantum factoring. If you want to read more about this variational quantum factoring algorithm, I've put a link in the show notes. For now, what's important to remember is that this algorithm uses a lot of classical compute power and just a little bit of quantum to attempt to factor numbers faster than a classical computer can. Well, this isn't provably faster at RSA cracking scales yet. You certainly can't kind of leave it out there as a, a, a possibility and not be worried about it, I think. Because what what on the off chance that there's a 10% chance that it works, 2% chance that it works, what's acceptable for like your entire infrastructure of your country going down? Is a 1% chance of a global nuclear war okay? No, I would argue no. Zero um, tolerability is really the, the goal there. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure that there are steps being taken to counteract this, right? This all sounds pretty scary. Uh, if all of the infrastructure of your, your company or your country goes down, what are people maybe broadly in the industry working on here? Uh, Johnny, why don't you take this one to begin with? Yeah, so the, the NIST, uh, which is the National Institute for Standards and, what is it, uh, technology, has been making an ongoing effort to identify 
classical algorithms, right, that would protect against quantum computers. And so they've had this sort of uh, post-quantum encryption challenge going on for quite some time. And they are sort of narrowing down the candidates, uh, trying to find something that's that's suitable. Uh, so I think I think uh, in the latest round they they narrowed it down to three possible ones are sort of the the ideal candidates. The reality is though that um, there is no uh, you know there is no confidence uh, or you know extreme confidence uh, in in these challenges. In fact, one of those sort of leading candidates was uh, you know broken like on a laptop uh, just you know. Yeah, Ray, Ray was broken in what seven hours? Seven hours, something like that, on a laptop. <laughs> right, and and that's not even a quantum attack, right? Um, so, you know, that's one of the challenges is not only do you have to come up with something that's you know resistant to a quantum computer, uh, it has to still be resistant to classical computers, and and there are a lot of you know very bright people, and it's it's difficult to find you know schemes that are that are truly resistant to anything that you can do. Christopher, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, okay, at least in the uh, realm of uh, classical computing, we had an easy, you know, red hat, black hat, send them at each other. And, and, and you know, it was kind of simple, you know, it was good guys versus bad guys. You can kind of know where you, you stand and, okay, it's, uh, okay, we, we have a vulnerability, let's fix it. And uh, But here we have just no idea how secure our thing is. Or um, what the attacks might look like because there the it hasn't happened yet on either side. So you know, I guess we just have to accept uh, sometimes that oh, you know, uh, the NSA said that this is quantum capable, uh, quantum resistant uh, based on what tests that we're not allowed to see because they, they are top secret, right? <laughs> uh, just accept it, know that it's true. But we know that you know RSA is not uh, completely secure. We know that, so how are we going to know that without doing the, the testing? So I think you know that this, this you know it really behooves us to start to think about what those testing regimes are. We have to get really smart about uh, benchmarking what these algorithms and the numbers of physical qubits and what you can do against that today. Um, having some of that knowledge of uh, what qubit counts can do what in what contexts in actual experiments is really vital uh, to do this. And you, know, you need to work with people who actually know what these estimates are. And unfortunately, you know, even in applications, we see aggressive uh, like applications like chemistry, we see pretty aggressive estimates of, oh yeah, in two or three years, we're going to be able to do better than DFT on a, on a quantum computer. And it's just not true. In case you're wondering, DFT here stands for density functional theory, which is a way of modeling quantum mechanical objects like molecules. There's been some progress to use a quantum computer to do this work, but without major progress, we're still pretty far from useful applications. Right. Um, when we've done the actual experiments and taken the time with, you know, our 30 plus researchers to look at these questions who are PhDs in, in this area doing the actual experiments, it gets pretty sobering that, oh, wow, I need that many qubits to do this. And I think the same thing is here. You can overestimate and underestimate what the threat is. And if you don't do the experimentation, if you're not working with groups who actually know what they're doing as far as doing those estimates, uh, you're going to get bamboozled. Just like we've seen people get bamboozled thinking, going into it that, oh, wow, I'm going to have, you know, chemistry working in a year or two. And then they do a proof of concept and, and, and they realize that, wow, we're, we're investing too early here. Uh, I think that's been kind of a, a harsh reality for some people. Um, I think it can be harsh on either side if you don't get the numerics right. 
and you don't do the experimentation. Um, just guessing is not a good business plan. Yeah, and just to add to that, you know, one of the things that the NIST that NIST does do, right, is they um, take uh, these uh, what are called quantum complexity proofs, right? So they they rely heavily on these sort of theoretical um, relationships between complexity classes, and basically that just means that you know if we could break this crypto system, it means we could do all kinds of other you know hypothetically powerful you know computer programs. Um, but what that doesn't capture is the actual hardness and the heuristics of those things, um, because these these uh, sort of proofs work in these sort of worst case regimes that don't really give you a very practical uh, feel for the, you know, the actual hardness mm. of the problem. Um, so, you know, Christopher, I think, is absolutely right that all of these tests have to happen because those types of proofs, you know, are not sufficient proof, uh, you know, for uh, security purposes, right? They're they're a nice, maybe intuitive indication that these are hard problems, but they they aren't proof enough. And they're certainly not. And they're certainly a proof of what they want to know. Like, am I vulnerable? Like, that's that's kind of the binary decision. Am I vulnerable? And then next is when, right? So that they know when to put the the investment thing on. And by uh, focusing on this complexity theory thing, that's when I can mathematically prove to certainty that it's going to be uh, possible for a hacker to get in. Okay, but that's not a good stance because, as we all know, uh, you know, hackers are pretty clever, and sometimes they have entire nation states full of hackers trying to get after you. They're the bad guys, right? Uh, and they've got endless money and endless uh, geniuses working on this. So taking the the you know worst case scenario where okay. A perfect computer is able to run shores in a perfect situation is the first chance that people are going to have, assuming that that's the first opportunity that people are going to have where anyone on a computer who can run shores can get at your stuff is the first time it's going to happen is a really, really bad uh, uh, security posture. To give an analogy for this, assuming that the only way someone can break your encryption scheme is with a fault-tolerant computer is like assuming the only way that Rome can be attacked is by the sea. Sure, you can say that it would take hundreds of ships to wage a naval battle against the Roman Empire, and by the time you'd get all those ships together, it would just be too long. But what if instead of trying to attack from the sea, Hannibal gets some war elephants and crosses the Alps with them? That type of attack didn't have a 100% chance of success, but what percent chance is worth risking? Christopher brings it back to today's challenges and says, The problem is that a lot of these uh, people thinking about this problem are, are thinking, well, Shor's algorithm, fault tower on computer, run by a nation state, blah, 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 perfect, you know, attack uh, 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 signature. Okay, yeah, but what if it were a couple of people who had access to Amazon and were running VQF on 6,000 qubits available uh, for a trial for free. Hmm. That is how you should be thinking about this, right? And and the truth is, if we've got a possible uh, chance with 6,000 qubits that not 100% of the time will I break security, but I've got a 1 in 100 chance or a 1 in 1,000 chance that I'm going to break into your a uh, very top secret thing that's very sensitive about where your uh, battleship is located in the ocean. If I've got a one in a thousand chance of figuring out where your air aircraft carrier is, is that a problem? Hmm. And if you start thinking in that way, 
the heuristic uh, uh, things like VQF and like this, that maybe one in a thousand, maybe one in a million, start to be a lot less palatable from a security perspective, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that reminds me one of the things too that is often overlooked in security protocols is the mere implementation of something, right? So, uh, you know, to give an example, you know, the Allies broke the Enigma machine back in World War II. And one of the things that allowed them to decrypt mes messages quickly was that they discovered that German, you know, cryptographers or the, the people operating these machines, they had to, they had to uh, set these wheels in every morning. And th they had uh, a sort of um, uh, calibration in which they would always send two letters at the beginning of a message that were just random letters. Uh, and it turns out that because uh, the, the people were a little lazy, they always typed in the same letter twice, hmm. right? AA or BB or CC. And it turns out that that tiny little, you know, implementation of the protocol changes the difficulty in the problem so significantly that they would, you know, it allowed messages to, to be decrypted where they couldn't be decrypted otherwise. Right. And it's, it, you know, so even on paper, if something looks very, very good, right, such yeah. subtle implementation errors can cause uh, issues in security. And so that's why you have to be so careful with these things. So how does this relate to quantum? Well, it's not actually quantum specific. The point here is that in order to really know that a system is secure, it has to have both the theoretical guarantee that it can't be broken by a classical or quantum system and have stood the test against real world attacks. We can relate this to a building security. It's the difference between saying, yeah, we thought long and hard and couldn't come up with any ways anyone could possibly break this lock, versus, yeah, we paid a penetration testing company to try their hardest to break into this building and they still couldn't do it. Both of those have at least a decent guarantee of security, but which one of those buildings would you trust more to keep bad actors out? Now think about the same thing for quantum secure encryption schemes. Which one do you trust more? One that someone has thought really hard about how they're going to break into it, or one where people have actually tried over the years and they can't do it? Yeah, okay. So if I'm a enterprise customer listening to this podcast, I'm thinking, oh dang, I, I, I guess I'm hearing two things, right? First thing is, oh dang, this sounds like it's really close, closer than what people are talking about with Shores, which is like way far away, millions of qubits, we're not there yet. 6,000 qubits though, that's pretty close. So like, what sort of timeline are we talking about? When do enterprises, governments, and other parties need to start worrying about quantum computers breaking encryption? I mean, the short answer is now, right? I mean, if you're thinking like how long it took to, to do just Y2K, and this is a lot more difficult a problem, like, you know, uh, getting through the process of, you know, figuring out what you need to protect and how to protect it. You need to start really thinking about it uh, now, uh, especially if you're a large organization with lots of data. Uh, and it may be already be too late. In some sense, the, the stuff that you may be worried about is already uh, taken and they're just waiting to have the decryption capability to look at it. So you have to think about that as well. So it's already too late in some sense for a protective uh, mechanism because they have already stored your information that you care about. And you may care about 10 years from now, right? Uh, you know, if you've got stuff, if you're a pharmaceutical company that, that does its uh, drug design on a 10-year basis and you think, you know, something that's 10 years out uh, right now uh, from clinical deployment in your patents and they're already compromised, well, would that be a problem for you? Yes, is probably the answer. Okay, so what do you do? What's your mitigation strategy 
for the stuff that's already compromised, number one. And then number two, how do you prevent the other stuff from being compromised today? It's not too soon because people are going to save it up and then decrypt it later. So you need to start thinking about maybe I want to be encrypting my stuff with something resistant today so that 10 years from now, it's not stolen from me and, and decrypted later. Or, or it's stolen today, stolen tomorrow, stolen a week from now, stolen a year from now, but then used against me in five years, 10 years. Pick your time frame. Uh, I think today is the unfortunate answer for this, that you need to get ready today and stop sending messages that aren't quantum uh, capably uh, encrypted, quantum resistant encrypted today. Uh, not yesterday, uh, not because uh, you've already sent the stuff you sent yesterday, but the messages you're sending tomorrow could possibly be uh, encrypted in, in a quantum safe way if you, if you set up your infrastructure tomorrow to do that. Um, and these things don't turn on, uh, on overnight. You need to make a purchasing decision. You need to do all this. So if, even if you started tomorrow and said, yeah, we're going to encrypt our, our, all of our messaging tomorrow and, and all of our you know, endpoints to back to home base uh, messaging tomorrow, oh, well, you know, it's going to take time to implement. So you're already too late. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, to simplify the calculation, right, you can think of, well, how long does your data need to stay safe, right? Um, let's call that X, right? Well, then, uh, you know, X uh, has to be larger than, let's say, Y plus Z, right? Where Y is the 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 length of time you'd like your your messages to stay safe, and Z, where it that's the length of time it takes, right, to um, uh, to implement the security system, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have implementation time plus the uh, uh, you know, time you'd like to keep it secure, and that has to be less than than the length of time it takes to you know develop quantum, uh, you know, let's let's call it Shor's algorithm, right? And what's shocking is those those first two timelines can be remarkably long, right? So even though we may say, well, Shor's algorithm is a long way out, you know, just think, well, you know, what if you had um, sensitive data from ten years ago posted today, you know, just on the internet, right? Um, how would that look? And what, you know, we also have to think about it in an adversarial setting, which is what could they possibly put, right? Um, maybe you're thinking, well, look, our, our, you know, bank account numbers, our order numbers from 10 years ago, they're not that sensitive, you know, but what about emails? Uh, you know, what about private exchanges between, you know, individuals that you'd rather not see made public, right? Um, and, you know, there's a remarkable amount of things that, you know, where people can damage you if they have access to that information. Yeah, and they, they don't need it to use it uh, directly as an attack. Like an, the content of an email can be used for extortion. And that is a threat. That is a security threat. It's very real. Uh, and so <laughs> the fear is now, you know, uh, or knowing what your strategy is or what, what you're doing vis-a-vis -vis another business competitively and whatever. Would you like, you know, how sensitive is that on a timeline? The stuff that you did against your competitor two years ago uh, in a boardroom and, and those those uh, minutes or that recording gets uh, published, uh, would that hurt your business today? The, the answer is probably yes, because they know how you think. Uh, so, you know, people aren't thinking about, you know, second order, third order uh, problems that arise from this. And again, it's already too late for the stuff that's out there because it is being recorded. It is being, uh, uh, you have been transmitting it. So you better start thinking about this today because it's already a problem. The stuff that was 
you should be thinking about what have we let out there uh, that we thought was encrypted that isn't. You should start thinking about what your mitigation strategy is for that as well, because um, it's out there. I mean, this store and then decrypt later thing is as old as World War II. I mean, that's what they did. They recorded all the radio messages, these, these, these uh, you know, uh, uh, messages, and they didn't have the cryptographic keys until they figured out how to how to how to break this. And then they broke it. And then they went back to all the recordings. And that's what's happening today. People should realize that everything that you're saying on the Internet today and you think is encrypted ain't from this perspective. OK, so then the the million or maybe even billion dollar question becomes if i need to start doing this now like what can i what steps can i take to protect my sensitive data john you want to take that one sure um the first thing is you know make sure the data that that you're sending for one is uh data that you know you're comfortable with potentially being taken right i mean the the first step right before you have any security in place right is to identify what your sensitive data is right and put protections around it you know unfortunately a lot of organizations don't have that mechanism in place right they they don't know how to sort of sort you know uh their their own network flow and, and look at that um so you know i think you know finding you know uh other organizations that can help with that sort of process, uh, you know, maybe the first step, right? Just analyze, know know what your own organization is doing, um, you know, and then after that, right? You can you can start coming up with strategies for uh, mitigation, right? Okay, now that this data is out there, what can we do, uh, and and then how can we re-encrypt this? So you know, for harvest and decrypt attacks made later, right? Uh, that your data is secure against those you know, those attacks as well. And I think many of this is outlined, you know, uh, uh, in a number of, um, uh, you know, public advisory uh, uh, documents. I think the QEDC has one uh, where they outline some of this, uh, which is useful. Uh, I think a, a really important point, though, would be that, you know, um, as you get ready to choose a platform, is to really think about agility. Like we said, I think, you know, at the beginning of this discussion, you know, we don't know what we don't know, right? It's the unknown unknowns that are scary here. So, you know, when you when you do design your infrastructure, you want to design based on a platform that's going to allow you to swap out different methods or use two methods in tandem, for example, uh, uh, together, uh, layer uh, security methods on, on top of each other. So being able to have a swappable system is critical here. Um, I would not uh, suggest to any organization right now to go out, read the NIST stuff and adopt whatever the, the last two are in, in this uh, phase that we are of the competition and start tomorrow without thinking about, OK, what if that one fails like Rainbow did? Um, already assume that it's going to fail. Assume that that one's going to become obsolete and kind of build the uh, natural course of obsolescence into your infrastructure strategy. I mean, that's something that we do naturally with Orchestra. It's all our, our, our product here, all about um, swapping things out and swapping out backends. And that's also about the infrastructure. You need to really think that way in designing an enterprise system that allows you to swap different methods, different security uh, statures, different different types of ways of you know securing payloads, securing messaging and all of that. Uh, and, and to be really forward thinking about that. You have to assume that the one that you choose today isn't going to be the one you're using two years from now, unfortunately. All right, I'm going to I'm going to grill you a little bit here. You ready? Okay, grilling. 
So why should anyone listen to us? Like, what is Zapata doing to support any of this post-quantum encryption stuff? Yeah, I guess, how do, how do you say that without bragging a little bit? I mean, and I don't know if it's something to brag about. We created one of the problems, which is this VQS. <laughs> uh, you know, literally, Yudong and, and one of our former interns patented this uh, uh, this algorithm that kind of takes shores and uh, makes it more of a near-term reality uh, by using um, a hybrid uh, quantum classical uh, system. So we're kind of culprits in making this reality. And we actually, Johnny, you remember that that weekend that we came up with and we're like, oh, what do we do as a board? What is the ethical thing to do here? Should we hide it from the world now that we know about this? Uh, And our uh, decision there was, um, no, we need to let the world know about this. We need to benchmark this so that people can get prepared. Because there may be something better than VQF out there breaking encryption that we don't know about yet. We did it in a weekend. Uh, because we have some really, really smart people, of course, uh, uh, who, who did this, you know, Eric and, and Yudong and others who, who are involved in that project. Um, but we wanted to be able to publicly benchmark this so that people can understand that you can't just wait complacently thinking that Shores is, 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 is the nearest term threat because it isn't. So why trust us? Well, we, we're part of the problem in a way, so we kind of know what the solution is. And we've done a lot of benchmarking. on it. We've worked with IBM on their machines. We have a published paper out there. Uh, on that, um, that you can share at the end of the podcast, I guess, uh, about um, VQF and, and, and the challenges that it, that it brings, uh, where we've done these experiments on real quantum computers. So we've been doing the experimentation. Uh, we're also um, uh, a, uh, a defense contractor in the DARPA project to benchmark variational algorithms and other algorithms uh, at an application level. So we're, we're like the trusted provider for the government to figure out how to benchmark um, hybrid algorithms like VQF. So we have a lot of uh, street cred, not just because we, we talk about being experts or whatever, but in this specific area, we're doing the benchmarking on real quantum hardware. So we kind of know better than others uh, where the problem is, what the investment um, time cycles really should be on this. And we kind of also know the solutions on the other end, uh, what will be vulnerable and what won't be. And we can test them. Johnny, I don't know if you wanted to kind of add to that. Yeah. So. Um, Christopher, you, you may not be aware. I, I'm the uh, the forgettable middle author on that oh, uh, uh, VQF paper. But, <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. So actually, but but to give a little more um, uh, context uh, with respect to VQF, and one of the things that I that I thought was something that we could we could have done better. Um, so you know the, this paper, which we you know sort of came up with with uh, uh, you know sort of a lot of work over a weekend uh, uh, to produce. Um, one of the one of the messages that was really inherent in this you know paper that we didn't uh, I, I feel like get the messaging across as well at the time was you know the the point is not that VQF is the most you know effective algorithm in the world for solving RSA or something, but rather that the combination of classical pre-processing and post-processing can really reduce the problem to something that is targetable by quantum computers a lot sooner than you might expect, right? Mm-hmm. So while you might think, oh, a million qubits is is where we have to be, right, uh, for Shor's algorithm, well, what about 6,000 qubits, right? And, um, you know, maybe there's even further methods, right, to reduce this overhead down 
to a you know quantum computer with 600 qubits, right? Um, and this is not something that we spent you know uh, uh, a year on, right? This is this happened over a weekend. And so if you know if we could do that, right? What could an adversary do, right? And and that's something that we you know really want to take seriously at Zapata is to start you know acting sort of putting ourselves in the shoes of the adversary, right? And say, well, what is it that uh, uh, you know an actor could do, right? If they really really wanted to you know, build the most efficient algorithm to get at your data sooner, uh, you know, what would that look like? And so that's something that, you know, we are very much taking seriously. And, you know, we think is a really important aspect of, you know, the, the security landscape, because if we're, you know, we may be doing it means someone else is surely doing it um, and someone else who you don't want to be doing it. Very interesting. And anything about Orchestra that you think uh, people should know about? Christopher, you've mentioned a little bit about modularity and swappability, um, not only with backends, but with these um, these encryption schemes. Anything else that we want to bring up here? Yeah, I think there are a couple of different things. Uh, one is that, you know, however you're going to do this, right, uh, to figure out your vulnerabilities uh, and test your data and, and test new schemes uh, for their capability, you're going to need some kind of platform that can do data analytics at a quantum scale. And that's what Orchestra is. It's really, how do I use all the compute power that I have on all the different clouds that I'm on and all the different on-prem that uh, I have available to me in an organization um, to test, uh, basically pen test, uh, different different types of uh, attacks. Also, uh, uh, look into analyzing uh, the data's vulnerability, right? You need a, a, a big DSML platform to be able to do that. And that's what Orchestra is. And it can work on multiple clouds and all of this. So it's kind of a natural platform for doing the benchmarking and doing the assessment parts of this. Um, so I got those in, in reverse, you know, you do the assessment, the assessment piece of where your data is and blah, blah, blah. That's a big DSML project that re requires multiple clouds because your data is probably on multiple clouds if you're a big company or a government, right? And then the second part is doing the pen testing piece, which is, you know, let's try this on ion traps. Let's try this on uh, um, uh, different platforms as they emerge and, and see where we are um, against that. Uh, using VQF, trying to run shores, trying to run something in between that's maybe in a highly uh, error mitigated regime and, and figure out where the numerics are. As a platform, it's great for doing that. That's why we're using uh, that platform in our uh, large benchmarking studies for customers, uh, including the Defense Department. Well, thank you both for coming on the pod. It has been uh, eye-opening for me. I hope that people don't walk away from this too uh, shaky at the knees and they know that good work is being done to mitigate some of these quantum threats. So yeah, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan. Like I said, I hope that you aren't too terrified by this episode, but that you do realize that the quantum threat is real and coming sooner than many people are predicting. For more info, check out the show notes for our blog post on quantum cryptography. One major takeaway I think I'll remember is that much like how it's unclear which quantum computing hardware architecture will win out in the end, it's unclear which quantum secure encryption scheme will be the most secure in the long run. Because of that, being agile in your implementation of quantum secure encryption is extra important. Be sure to like the podcast wherever you listen to it, subscribe, and maybe even leave a review if you're feeling generous. 
Until next time, this is Ethan Hansen saying thank you to all the middle authors out there. Your work is appreciated. <laughs>